on the internet and the official podcast of the Cody Pickett Fan Club. I am Andrew Berg. We're going to be joined later tonight by draft expert EJ Snyder to talk about Huskies in the NFL draft coming up, where they project to go, what they can do in the pros, what he's seen on the tape. But for now, to start out, we're going to talk, take a little tour around Husky Football Nation with Gaby Lucas. Gaby, how's it going tonight? Hey, it's going good. It is raining very heavily, and I'm very happy that apparently you guys cannot hear that through my microphone. So that's about as ideal as it can be for January. Yeah, even if we do, it's just like ambient noise. It it sets the theme for uh, talking about anything in Seattle at this time of year. Yeah, it's elevator music. Let's start our Husky football podcast by talking about Washington State. Uh, They probably are at the top of the headline list right now, hiring Nick Rolovich from Hawaii. Uh, Tell me about your initial impressions of Rolovich. We're going to be seeing a lot of him over the next few years in Washington. Is he a good hire? Can he build on what Mike Mike Leach did in Pullman? Is that even a realistic goal? I think it'll be a really interesting uh, um, evolution going from Leach to Rolovich, especially since if you look at the way that the air raid works is making it super simple. and so the reads that quarterbacks have to make are almost non-existent. Um, there's a really good uh, article in The Athletic, I think it was in like last August, and then it got brought back up again when Mike Leach was hired, uh, where they talked to a bunch of uh, Wazoo quarterbacks, and they were talking about how simple that system is. And they almost called it, they're like, there's no system, you just go and go throw it to the open guy, you know, which obviously is what you're supposed to do regardless, but it is such a quarterback friendly system and the system that obviously you look at like say Jimmy Lake being able to defeat it really easily when when you look at it that way um and, and when you look at the run and shoot uh and Rolovich's everything he was running at Hawaii it it is can be so effective through the air obviously you know you're seeing that with Cole McDonald um uh, the last few years as well as their other backup I think I'm spacing on his name right now uh, who are both really successful, but it's such a more, you know, there's so, it's such a more dynamic um, decision-making process that you have to get for your quarterbacks to be doing, to be successful there. Um, so it's kind of a 180 uh, from what Wazi was running, even though the end result is quite similar. Um, I mean, I guess there's less dink and dunk in it in the run and, run and shoot, but, but it's a lot of, airing it out but the process of picking who to air it out to is so different um, and I think that's going to be the most interesting thing is seeing how um, Wazoo quarterbacks adapt to that and seeing if they can kind of keep going with having that one after another coming in and being really successful um, with it being a much more or at least a moderately more complicated system. Yeah it, it, there, I think that's a really good summation it is a different system to some casual fans, there will be some superficial similarities that you're yeah. still going to see Wazoo airing the ball out a lot, and there are going to be a lot of receivers on the field at all times. 
it's probably the the way they get there is going to be more complicated and it won't be as paint by numbers to defend it because there are there's more read yeah. and react in the system. Uh, I, I think some of the unanswered questions about Rolovich will revolve around if, how he adapts to a bigger job. He uh, went to Hawaii. He's coached the majority of his career there. He, uh, you know, it, it, I think there was a, a fair chance that he would never leave Hawaii as long as he could stay there. So it's a little bit surprising that he did. Uh, he was good in Hawaii. I think his final record there ended up being one game over 500. It was kind of ironically a very similar trajectory to the one Leach followed at Wazoo, where he started out very poorly and over three or four years built them up into uh, a better program than they'd been in quite a while. Uh, the big difference, of course, being that Leach was doing it in a conference where he was always at a resource disadvantage. Hawaii was probably uh, not as far behind the rest of the Mountain West as WSU is behind a school like USC or UCLA in terms of resources. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, how is he going to recruit in the Pac-12? Uh, he does have the same benefit that Leach had, that he's recruiting for a specific system so he can target players who fit that system, but it might not be as um, distinctive especially as we see more uh, pass-heavy concepts in the, con- in the conference. It'll be difficult. I, I, I think he seems like a much more decent person than Mike Leach, but I yeah. think he's going to have a, a hard time having any 10 or 11 win seasons like Leach did uh, a couple years in, in Pullman. And I, I think I'd ultimately bet against him having any double-digit win seasons in the next five, six years as he develops that program. Yeah, and I think also, though, what's, what's worth noting is, well, I think it'll be harder – for him to implement the run and shoot at Wazoo than it was for Mike Leach to implement the air raid. Um, I think if he can do that, I think he's going to have much more success against, uh, you know, potentially against Washington and against a lot of other defenses that could kind of just sit back and wait for the air raid to come to them and then just kind of crush them, you know, for five yard gains. And uh, so I think, I think it's kind of a potential to, to not be as successful, but I also think if he can get it running, uh, there's a lot of stuff that the kind of humps that the Cougars were over to get able to get over with Mike Leach in that system, and I think Rolovich potentially, if things go right, could get over that. So probably altogether higher ceiling, lower floor for Rolovich than what we saw from Leach. Since the last time record, we recorded, speaking of coaching changes. We hired an offensive coordinator. Uh, Max and I briefly got out an emergency podcast on John Donovan uh, as the new offensive coordinator, but we haven't heard your thoughts on Donovan. I just thought if, you know, we've had a couple weeks now to process the news, and I was interested to hear where your mind is, uh, given kind of the initial, I would say, not overwhelmingly positive reviews of the hire, and now having a little bit of time to digest it. What are you thinking right now? Yeah, I mean, obviously it's not. I think Mike Farrell put, I mean, was it Mike Farrell? I think it was Mike Farrell or was it Christian Cable who said on the surface it is kind of putrid. Um, and I don't. I, I think, don't he, think, to be fair, I think he described yeah. the Penn State offense in Donovan's yeah, worst was year as putrid. He didn't, yeah, yeah and this turned into a. Into, yeah, we'll leave um, it that, yeah. <laughs> being like, take your putrid and shove it, yeah. uh, which is pretty fun on Twitter. Uh, 
No, um, yeah, so I should say the Pensit offense was putrid uh, when when he was there, which, to be fair, was not helped by the fact that the Penn State O-line was also putrid, and Christian Hackenberg is truly, I feel so bad for the guy, but Hackenberg, man, oof, yeah, you know, that's not a lot to work with, um, but still, that regardless of who he was working with, um, yeah, it doesn't exactly inspire confidence. Um, so, yeah, my initial reaction was really similar to a lot of people's where I'm just like, wow, this blows hard, and, you know, yeah, it was kind of a unanimous response from everybody. Um, I think the more I sit on it, the l- I still don't like it, quote unquote, but I'm less doom and gloom than when it first came out. And I think that's kind of I think that's kind of how not inspiring hires or decisions made by you know people to declare for the draft or whatever. I think that's kind of how always how at least for me personally how my reactions end up is at first it's like, oh, shit, oh, this sucks, oh, everything sucks, oh, we're screwed. And then, but then I think when you look at, again, this is just my personal process of how I react to things, um, especially in something that has so many factors going into it as a football program um, and an offense, and I step back and look at, you know, all the things that could go right and could go wrong, I'm less um, – I'm less vehemently negative as I was when, you know, for the first while after that came out. Um, and I think, I think I need to go back and actually watch more film. I've seen, you know, a handful of stuff from his time at, at Penn State and less at Vanderbilt. I think Vanderbilt, um, would be more interesting to look at. Um, and I need to go back and watch some more of that. But, uh, yeah, I think right now the way I'm sitting on it is I'm like, Obviously, don't still don't love it, especially now that Oregon officially got Joe Moorhead, which on the surface of the two <laughs> of the two Penn State coordinators that have been there uh, under Franklin uh, prior to now, um, you know, no one would argue that Donovan was better than Moorhead. Um, I, I, but you know, I think there's enough stuff that's that is enough tools to work with for the personnel on UW's offense that. Um, I, I, I think that, um, there's a decent, quite a decent likelihood that, that Donovan's offense actually looks quite different from what we saw at Penn State because so much of what he was running at Penn State was based on, okay, our O-line is turnstiles and our quarterback can barely hit the broadside of a barn, so just get it out quick and, you know, get it out to where he can hit somebody. So obviously that's not going to make anything look good. Um, but still we've seen guys do more with even less. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it, I think the offense could be better than the offensive coordinator hire is next year is kind of how I'm feeling about it. Yeah, I think that's fair. There's still a lot of unknown with Donovan. I, I try not to rush to judgment on things like this because it doesn't do you a lot of good to win the off season. There's so many examples of times when something looked like a slam dunk on paper. I think the most often cited example is that year the Philadelphia Eagles, what was that, 2009 or 10 or something, they signed every, like, the top six free agents as Namdi Asamoah, Vince Young was one of them. I don't remember everybody, but Vince Young called them a dream team, and they went, like, seven and nine and never, (laughs) I don't think, ever played in a playoff game together. Uh, But point being, like, 
things look like they can't miss, and then they they miss. Um, I've right. talked to like I'm a Minnesota Timberwolves fan, and I was so excited when they hired Tom Thibodeau because it was like the best possible coach on the open market who'd proven himself everywhere, and it was a complete catastrophe, just like, like as bad of a three-year span as you could possibly have uh, in basketball. And I, I try to think through this a little bit. You know, like there's so much more that goes into being a coach. There's cultural fit, there's player motivation, there's recruiting, there's uh, mentorship and, and being a role model and uh, understanding X's and O's and fitting in with your colleagues. And, you know, a lot of it is like an X's and O's. Yeah, right. Uh, and and we're we're just not going to see a lot of what sits beneath the surface. We see the end product, and I have no idea what the end product is going to be. And I think that's kind of what you were getting at, that there's yeah. a lot more still to happen that we haven't seen and won't see for quite a while. Uh, so it's kind of, you know, pointless but fun to speculate about what Donovan will be over the next several months. But we're not going to learn a lot until – Honestly, you know, six, seven, eight games into the year when we start to see trends. We'll see some personnel things and we'll see some play calling things. But really getting a feel for who he is as a coordinator and what our offense is going to look like is going to take some time. Yeah, and I keep going back to the fact that, I mean, I keep thinking about, yeah, the amount of times people thought there was a good hire or a bad hire that end up, you know, and they all end up being wrong. And granted, that's not something that you want to base your optimism off of, off of is like, well, he sucked in the past, but we've been wrong before, you know, like, because <laughs> more often than, you know, the majority of the time, that's still not good evidence. But um, I'm like, well, we all were laughing at Arizona State for Herm Edwards, and that was fine. Right. And, you yeah. know, and, 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 and lauding UCLA for hiring Chip Kelly, and that has not yeah. gone well. Yeah, and I'm like, especially because Donovan, you know, he's still young enough where he's still learning. Or right, has yeah. has spent, what is he, like 45? 45. I think he was 38 when he started at Penn State, so that's exceptionally yeah. young for a, a coordinator on that level. Yeah, and especially it's like, you know, there's um, – yeah, it's just like there's, there's a lot of, of – Unless you're an absolutely terrible, terrible coach and terrible, terrible coordinator, like you're not going to be static, um, especially when you're a young coordinator who's still been, you know, figuring stuff out and kind of learning on the job. And, um, you know, and I, I don't want anyone to hear this and think that I am spinning this higher into something that I'm super stoked about. But, um, yeah, I just think there's a lot of stuff that goes into a lot of things. Yeah. I would say I'm excited about it, but I will say I'm open-minded. And speaking of that open-mindedness, we'll get some of those questions answered as we get into the meat of the 2020 Husky football schedule, which has now been released. It doesn't have any of the obvious potholes in the schedule that we've had the last few years where we see a tough road Friday road game after a Saturday night game or playing a really good team coming off their bye or something like that. The most notable uh, items we already knew, uh, opening at home against uh, Michigan, first game of the year, not uh, taking any tune-up games, and getting the bye week after the three non-conference games and heading into the game with Oregon in week four. So it's an early-ish bye, but it's probably a good time to get it. Uh, Any initial impressions for you, Gaby, on the schedule release, is there any one game or stretch that really jumps out as uh, drawing your attention? I'm going to level with you. I looked at the schedule when it was released once and was like, okay, cool, and then haven't looked at it since. Because that's, that's kind of one of those things where I, like, kind of pay attention to the schedule and then don't forever. 
and that until it gets right around uh, the the season. I think what's going to be really interesting though is that uh, Michigan and UW are both breaking in quarterbacks uh, right at the same time, so that could be a clusterfuck of a game. In, but in all of the most delightful ways, as far <laughs> as far as you look at Michigan's defense and UW's defense, and then yeah. and then two totally new uh, signal callers, and I'm like, this could be messy, and I'm really excited for it. Yeah, it that definitely has the look of one of those like 21 to 17 games where most of the points are scored by the defense somehow. I, I will say the one thing. I noticed it was an absence. The first time I looked at the 2019 schedule, I saw this block of games in the middle where it went USC at Stanford at Arizona, Oregon, Utah, and I was terrified immediately. I was like, we're not getting through that five games with zero losses. If we can get through it with two losses, that would almost be a victory. We ended up losing three of the five, uh, and, you know, the, none of the games were easy. We don't really have a stretch quite like that this year. Uh, you know, a lot remains to be seen about which teams end up being better and which teams end up being worse, but just the sequence isn't as terrifying. We don't have back-to-back road games. We don't play, you know, like the, Oregon's probably going to be the best uh, competition in the Pac-12 North, and that's sandwiched between Utah State and Oregon State. Uh Oregon State's improved, but they're certainly not on the level of some of those other teams. So just looking at that overall, uh, I think there are less opportunities to kind of fall off a cliff. Hopefully we're not going to fall off a cliff anyway, but I'm less worried about that than I would have been uh, a year ago at this time or even going into the season. Yeah. Uh, Wait, really quickly, can I put a – can we put a pin in that? And just because you mentioned Oregon State, and I saw uh, like Athlon or whatever Pac-12 prediction, way too early prediction next year. Um, my, I want to put this prediction down right now and just say that uh, I saw Oregon State was predicted to be last in the North by Athlon, and I'm saying now they'll finish above Stanford and wants to. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I, the first yeah. thing that came to mind was I think they'll at least finish out of Stanford. Stanford looks yeah. like they're very much going in the wrong direction, and half their team is transferring out. So I am yeah. not uh, – we'll see what happens. A lot of time between now and the fall, but I, I would definitely at this point pick Oregon State ahead of them. Yeah. I thought you were going to pick Oregon State to win the North, and I was going to be really impressed. Oh, God. I would no. have seen that. But well, to be fair, I did pick – Colorado being good in 2016, so I'm kind of cocky about these things. Uh, but no, Oregon <laughs> State reminds me. Kind of, just nailed it. Yeah. yeah. Oregon State kind of reminds me right now, uh, going into next year, uh, they remind me of Cal coming into this yeah. last year, oh, except yeah. for like the defense and offense mm-hmm. is swapped, where it's like, yep. okay, I think, yeah. Got right. identifiable playmakers, coach who really knows what he's doing. Yep. Uh, yep. Well, yep. let's yep. take a break there. We're going to come back. We're going to interview EJ Snyder, our NFL draft expert. Uh, and then we'll come back and we'll, we'll talk to EJ a little bit about the Huskies in the draft. And then we'll wrap up, so stick around, and we will be right back. Welcome back. We are joined by EJ Snyder. He's the lead draft analyst for Windy City Gridiron. It's the SB Nation uh, blog on the Chicago Bears. He's also the co-host of the Bears Over Beers podcast, and you can find him at the Draftsman FB on Twitter. Very likely that the FB stands for football, but we're just going to keep you guessing. EJ, welcome. Thanks for joining us tonight. Hey, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, guys. This is a blast. 
So before we get into the Husky questions, I would be very interested to hear how one becomes a, a lead draft analyst for any website or just a draft enthusiast as you are. Tell me about your backstory a little bit. Uh, so I've always been interested in the draft. I get that question quite a bit. And uh, I always had a great love for it, even well before it was publicized. But I didn't know a lot about it, and I certainly didn't know enough about how college players translated to the NFL. And probably about 10 years ago, I started to kind of dig into that process. And, um, you know, I had watched Mel Kiper Jr., and I, you know, um, Todd McShay really wasn't so much on the scene yet, but um, it was starting to rise in popularity, and I had realized how much impact it really had on the whole league, and that was the thing that that just sort of blew me away is this is the foundation of uh, better than two thirds of the NFL. And if you studied the draft, you'd probably understand the NFL pretty well. And that was the goal. So I found out uh, what I didn't know um, by trying to have some opinions on players and realized that what a lot of people put out there for opinions wasn't really based on anything. They didn't do any research. Uh, it was a lot harder to do 10 years ago. So I started asking the people that did research and uh, reaching out to them and saying, hey, you know, how did you learn and where do you get your stuff and, and what are you looking for and what's important? And I was just really curious about it. And I started uh, putting my comments actually in the, just the comments section at Windy City Gridiron. I was not a commentator. I was just a, an average spectator like everybody else. And I got in some arguments and, uh, you know, uh, licked my wounds and went back and figured out what I didn't know and then uh, started backing up opinions about players. And pretty soon people started to ask me about players, which was weird uh, to me, but that just gave me more targets to go sort of um, learn about and, and dig into. And uh, it wasn't probably more about a year, year and a half of that before people started asking me, well, where can I buy your draft guide? And I was like, I don't, I don't write a draft guide. And somebody said, well, maybe you should. And I said, well, I that sounds like a lot of work. Um, so I started looking into that and, and talking to people who had done it. And about that time, Windy City put out a call for uh, new contributors. And so I um, made a pitch and submitted a thing to the editor. And he called me up and said, we love your stuff. We've been watching your comments for a couple of years. Um, would you write a weekly draft column? And like any good aspiring writer, I said, sure. And he said, can you put one up next week? And I said, sure. And then I panicked and uh, it kind of went from there. So I did a weekly draft column uh, for about six months. And then I did two a week uh, in the lead up to the draft. And pretty much ever since then, um, I've been the draft analyst for Windy City. And then last year we started Bears Over Beers Um when SB Nation brought podcasts in-house, and we just finished our first season of that, and that was 38 episodes. So it was pretty pretty interesting, but it's a, it's a learning process. It's just, for me, it was born out of curiosity about what makes somebody good and why do people bust and, you know, what are the traits that translate and, and all those questions, and I'm just fascinated by it. That's very interesting. It's also great to have somebody on this podcast with some expertise and who's studied things. Uh, but we'll try to uh, keep up as much as we can. You talked about uh, the importance of the draft, obviously having the outsized impact on uh, success at the professional level. Nowhere is that more true than at the quarterback position. Huskies have 
what a lot of experts have rated as one of the top handful of quarterbacks in the draft, and our arch rivals also have one of those. So I'd be very interested to hear your impressions on the projection for Jacob Easton. What does he do well? What does he need to change? Ultimately, do you think he's going to be successful? And, and how that contrasts with what you see in Justin Herbert as well. Oh, yeah, Mr. Herbert. I saw him today. I, I also saw the other arch rivals uh, quarterback um, today, so we'll talk about that too. But back to Eason, um, prototypical guy in terms of arm strength, uh, size, um, just sort of athletic stature, um, really, really trusts his arm, and that can be a either a really good thing or a downfall um, in young quarterbacks. Chicago fans are, are very used to quarterbacks who trust their arm. They, they got to watch Jay Cutler for 10 years. Um, and Eason has a bit of that gunslinger mentality in him. Uh, he can really push the ball. That's the first thing that jumps out about um, Jacob Eason on tape is when he decides to throw it and lets it loose, um, that ball is flat, it's on a line, and it gets to a spot in a hurry. Um, the things that make people worry about Eason, everybody would say, well, that sounds great. You know, he's a big, tall guy that's athletic and has a cannon for an arm. Why, you know, why isn't he a great quarterback? Well, quarterbacking is a fusion of things, not just arm strength. Um, Ethan's not much on layering the ball in there, uh, has trouble with touch throws over the top. He's not a guy that, for the most part, throws guys open. Um, his mechanics break down a little bit if he's pressured, so that means he kind of baseballs it. Um, uh, his footwork is... Uh, boy, sometimes stunning uh, and not necessarily in a good way. Um, he does some amazing things from sort of um, off-base platforms, uh, but he's going to have to learn the nuances, right? He's going to have to learn to read progressions. He's going to have to learn to um, have some kind of repeatable mechanics because that's where his inaccuracy comes from when he doesn't throw the ball consistently. It's because he's throwing off a really weird base or some strange arm angle, or he's completely twisted around and his top half isn't sort of mated to his bottom half in the throwing motion. So there's there's some things for him to work on, but are the tools there? Yeah, and when he makes wow plays, he's kind of a half-and-half half guy, right? When he makes those plays, everybody goes, oh, that's the guy you need, right? That's the guy that's going to lead you to wins in the NFL. And then he makes those other plays where he throws into quad coverage off his back foot, and everybody goes, oh, you can't afford to do that in the NFL. And they're both right, but you're going to have to – you're going to have to sort of eradicate some level of those plays. Nobody's going to do it all the time, and you're going to have to be more consistent about those really good, solid plays um, and learn to do little things. Um, throw guys open, not just throw to a spot, throw with a little bit more touch. So he's going to have to work hard. He can do it, um, but landing spot is going to be absolutely essential for him. Um, yeah, I don't think you can get any really... arguments. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, can I really quickly throw in another question? about yeah. Eason that, that you think based on your, uh, uh, you know, last decade and plus of, of covering draft stuff and, and trends and quarterbacks for the NFL, do you think that um, – so a big a big thing that UW fans saw a lot from him is that he had a lot of difficulty stepping up in the pocket, um, even when there – you know, sometimes there wasn't one to step up into, but even when there was, if there was pressure off the edge, that sometimes he would just – Oftentimes he would kind of Russell Wilson it where he'd turn around, run backwards or sideways, but, you know, he's not Russell Wilson, so he can't do that, and he would get sacked and lose a bunch. Um, in your experience, do you think there's, you know, there's some qualities and bad characteristics that some college quarterbacks have that 
they're able to fix in the NFL and some things that they aren't. In your experience, do you think that that is something that is one of the easier, not easier, nothing's easy to fix in the NFL, but um, do you think that's something that there's a chance of him improving on, even as the competition obviously gets a bajillion times more difficult in the NFL and the pass rush is more, uh, you know, a lot more present? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, on many levels, I do think he can learn to climb the pocket. Um, like you said, and I appreciate it, it's not easy to do, but I think that also mates with um, him having more regimented footwork. Uh, any quarterback coach that gets him in the league is going to work on shoring up his footwork and keeping him on a consistent base. And the best quarterbacks, even if they're not Russell Wilson, and lots of them aren't, like you mentioned, uh, it's Guys that have subtle movement in the pocket can be very effective. Mm -hmm. Tom Brady is a great example. Tom Brady will make small shifts in the pocket. He's not a blazer. He's not a super athletic guy that rolls away from pressure extremely well. He is a guy that climbs the pocket well, but he'll move two feet, right, three feet, just enough to get out of the grasp, keep his base, and throw a ball. And that's what Ethan's going to have to learn to do because he's not athletically gifted like Russell Wilson or – uh, Lamar Jackson or Kyler Murray or any other number of players like that. He's not super fast, but he's easily athletic enough to do those small movements. He's just going to have to learn how to do them and sort of repeat them and then not panic and break down. And that's the hardest thing to do when some, you know, maw of a guy who weighs 330 and wants to eat your lunch is coming in your face. <laughs> so, uh, Andrew, that, I think yeah, you had another question. Well, I, I was going to say, Essentially what you said, that you're not going to get much argument about the uh, mechanics breaking down and the footwork being questionable from Husky fans who've watched a lot of Easton this year. But how does that compare? I think most uh, experts seem to have Justin Herbert rated slightly more highly than Easton. Who do you like as a prospect? And obviously this is going to be somewhat system-dependent and fit-dependent. But how do you kind of compare and contrast the two of them as NFL prospects? That's a great question, and, and your point about system and fit is well taken. Where guys land is probably upwards of 30 to 50% of their success. It really does matter what the coaching staff is, what the system is, what they think they can get them to do, and how they get them to do that. It makes a massive difference because we see plenty of guys with great talent just bust, and it's because of fit. So, um Agnostic of fit, just looking at Herbert Neeson, I would say Herbert I would rate higher. Um, he throws a better deep ball. He really can spin it. He does it much more consistently. Um, he still needs to do some of the things Eason does in terms of not panicking and being consistent, but his results are more consistent than Eason's right now uh, in terms of how he gets the ball there. Um, what those throws look like, the base they come off of. Um, and he throws a better layer ball. He throws a, b a ball that he can lead out in front of a wide receiver. Ethan is very much about a spot. He is waiting for a guy to come open to a spot, and then he is going to 
drill the ball with all his might to that spot. And he can do it because he's got that crazy arm. But so many times you'll see him push it through three or four defenders who are just kind of waiting there. And anybody with a lesser arm, they could never make the throw. Eason can. But he waits for that guy to be open. He doesn't throw guys open. And that's a pro skill because windows are a lot smaller in the pros. Um, Herbert shows a little bit more of that. So I would rate him a little bit more highly now. Um, Jim Nagy, the director of the Senior Bowl, in his opening press conference spoke uh, very, very highly about Herbert for several reasons. Um, But one is that he's never had pro quarterback coaching. And you'd say, well, he's not in the pros, of course. Um, Most of these guys that go to D1 have pro quarterback coaches, individual quarterback coaches. Um, That's very, very common these days. And, in fact, it's very uncommon for somebody to ascend to that level without having had one. And Herbert hasn't had one. And that's fascinating. And pro coaches are just chomping at the bit to work with him because there's so much left to mold there. Um, And that's not necessarily the case with most of the guys they see. Cool. Um, Are we, as far as quarterbacks, Andrew, do you have any other questions about that? No, no. I I know you wanted to ask about uh, Hunter Bryant. I think if you did jump into that. I do, indeed. yeah. Also, I think that's interesting. I did. I never knew that that uh, Herbert had never had a you know a quarterback, a pro quarterback coach. Because yeah, like you said, that's so common, and it's. I think it's also really interesting when you when you look at the economics of who ends up a quarterback and who doesn't, because so many people will start working with quarterback coaches when they're you know twelve years old, and that's such a huge barrier to entry. Um, yeah, so that's, that's fascinating. Funny. You yeah. should write a book about that, Gabby, you should, <laughs> because uh, it's a yeah. fascinating topic, and you just touched yeah, on it, but it's, it's a huge change in the last 10 to 15 mm-hmm. years. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think that's interesting. I, I, I'm glad that you mentioned that about Herbert, because it's fun learning learning little things like that that, that yeah, you know you never knew. Anyways, though, um, Hunter Bryant, I want to talk about him. Because, uh, you know, going into the year, I think currently I think and many projections I've seen is either the second or third tight end off the board. Um, but I think it's one thing that I think is interesting about him is that the last his freshman and sophomore year, he was primarily just a huge dynamic uh, receiver. Uh, and this year, you know, he gained a little bit of weight, turned more into a blocker as well, although obviously primarily he was still a pass catcher. Um, but I've seen a little bit of. Uh, some analysis saying, you know, maybe he's um, suffered a, a somewhat as a dynamic athlete in space and as a as a receiver. Um, do you think one where where do you see him kind of ending up um, with his current skill set? And do you think ultimately that he will kind of be more of that uh, versatile, both for blocking and receiving tight end, or do you think that he'll end up kind of more like how he was used his first two years at? at UW where he was almost exclusively, you know, being not exclusively being set up, exclusively being a really effective as a pass catcher. Yeah, it's a great question. I watched Hunter um, Monday after we lined this up because he's not here at the Senior Bowl, and I was really concentrating on tight ends that were going to go to the Senior Bowl first um, because I knew I was coming down. Um, I'd certainly seen plenty of Hunter being in the Northwest. Um, he's a guy that catches your eye. Uh I watched two games from this year, Arizona and Utah, um, and got a pretty good idea. He's a good athlete. He's got a lot of potential, but he also has a lot to work on because the the point you the piece you pointed out of his game, that pass catching, route running part, he's 
pretty well developed there, and he's a great athlete. He catches most everything that's thrown at him. Um, catches pretty well. Uh, he needs to work on triangling up his hands a little bit. He's a little bit uneven in his catching grip, and that causes him to kind of catch both ends of the ball, which is a weird thing to do. Um, can lead to some drops, but generally he didn't drop those balls. That's a little thing, but blocking and routes um, and releases are the things that he needs to work on. Right now, he tips his releases, um, which works in college when you're a great athlete, but it doesn't work in the pros. Um, if you're, you know, lining up in the slot like he did and you're leaning to the inside, you, you're giving the defensive back half the field. He knows you're going inside. Um, I don't, I don't know if anybody's ever worked with Bryant on the concept of stems, and I don't know if you guys know what stems are, but stems are the top of your route, and you make them exactly the same. You take the first five steps the same no matter what, and then the defensive back has no idea, and you can really sell a fake. He doesn't really run stems. He leans into his routes a little bit. He rounds his, he rounds his corners. Lots of things that young route runners do um, that take away from his athleticism because they give the defensive back advantages. So releases is one. Um, blocking, he tries real hard. Um, but again, I don't know if anybody's gotten with Hunter Bryant and said, okay, um, dude, you're pretty tall. You're, you're definitely athletic. First thing, drop your butt. <laughs> Second thing, get your hands up. And this sounds weird, but Hunter Bryant will block by running his face into people. And so is that, that good or funny. not good? It's, I mean, it's good from an effort standpoint. In fact, um, Jim Nagy, director of the Senior Bowl, uh, was talking to the tight ends here and saying, hey, a lot of you guys didn't have to block in college. That's what a lot of pro scouts are going to be looking for here. And he said, I don't care how you make the block. I don't care if it's pretty. Just He literally said, run your face into somebody, show some effort. And Hunter already does that, but he's going to have to move past that to be an effective blocker. And that means – you know, extending those arms, keeping them off his frame, and then rolling his hips, which is the way any good offensive lineman or tight end is going to create motion in, in the run game or, or good solid pass pro. Um, he doesn't have that right now. He tries real hard, and, and he generally moves people out. The one thing he's really good at in blocking right now, again, because he's that great athlete, is hitting guys in space. So Chris Peterson, that offense, you know, a lot of things to the edge, wide receiver screens, bubble screens, uh, toss sweeps, um, RPOs off the outside tackle. And a lot of times because of where Hunter lined up, he was the lead blocker, whether it was out of the fullback, the H back, or even the slot. And he's able to hit that guy in space on a lot of blockers because they're a little more stout or a little less athletic, have trouble doing that, but he can get on that guy in space. Now, when he gets on him, he shoves his face into him, not his arms, but that's a different story. Um, so he's got skills. Um, he's got raw materials, but it's going to take a coach, uh, both sort of an offensive line coach and a, and a receiving coach, because, again, that's the, the hybrid of being a tight end, who can work with him and say, these are the things we need to develop. As a receiver, we got to work on your catching a little bit, your releases, not tipping your routes as a blocker, we got to get your hands out and we got to roll your hips. And if he does, you know, I don't know how he is as a learner. That's one thing that I never get access to is, is how these guys respond to coaching, how they pick up playbooks, how they take constructive criticism. If he's one of those guys that's a, that's a learner and, and wants to get better and, and build his body and build his game, he's got the potential to be really good. Um, if he doesn't, he's just going to be another guy. Mm-hmm. Do you think uh, just – Oh, you, uh, just as a, as a as a prediction, sorry, Andrew. Uh, if you had to 
make a prediction of where he goes because there's been a pretty w- wide range of, of draft predictions yeah. on him in the last year or so. Where where would you put him? Um, I haven't watched all the tight ends. I've watched all the tight ends here at the Senior Bowl, and I've watched a couple of the other guys as well. Um, so I can't really stack him, but I would say yeah, – fair. And, and again, it only takes one team, right? If somebody falls in love with him, either mm-hmm. combine or you know he blows up a drill that they really like or whatever, maybe they take him in the second. I think that would be a little bit high. Um, I think end of the second, middle of the third would be a very, very solid spot to get a guy like Hunter because you're getting some potential and some production. Um, but you know, I wouldn't be at all surprised anywhere between mid third to probably mid fifth. After that, he's just a screaming value, and you go get him just because he's he is what he is. Yeah. Uh, cool. So while we're on the subject of the mechanics of blocking, there are a handful of offensive linemen uh, coming out of UW this this year as well. Probably the highest profile one, or at least he has been over the last few years, is Trey Adams. Uh, what have you seen when you've watched Adams so far? Do you think are the injury issues he had uh, a year ago? Is he does he seem to be fully recovered from those? To your eye, do you think he has? Uh, the developmental ability to kind of hold down a tackle spot in the NFL? I think he does. He's got a lot of tools. Um, You hit on it, though. Injuries are going to be the biggest thing. He was supposed to be here at the Senior Bowl. Um, Never really heard about him withdrawing, but he's not here. So um, whatever worked out, don't know if that was injury, training, uh, family. There's there's a lot of reasons that guys don't show up. Um, Medical are going to be huge for him in Indianapolis at the Combine. Um, if he comes out with a clean sheet, yeah, he's a guy that um, is going to be right up there in the top tier of the tackle class. I don't think he's going to be, well, seeing what I've seen here and, and knowing who else is on the board, I don't think he's going to be top three, but um, he could be top five pretty easily, and that's rare air in the, in the tackle category. That means you're probably going, you know, end of the first round. Um, so... You know, if he comes out clean, he's got the frame. Um, he's shown the ability to hold down the position when he's healthy. Um, there's just, you know, it's Bill Parcells' planet theory, right? There's just not that many guys that are that big and that fast. And he's one of them. Um, you go get him if you can. So, Gabby, did you want to uh, discuss some of the rest of the offensive line as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, although, first, before we I do that, uh, uh, producer Rob just sent us a, sent us a text about because uh, he's listening to that um, that apparently he's not at, uh, Adams is not at the Senior Bowl because he has a minor hamstring injury is what Rob says so I will yeah, take his name for it that's, um, um, yeah. that's not good <laughs> it would be better <laughs> if it was just I'm training right but yeah that's yeah his, that's his red flag already so if he's got to yeah, keep him from being here it's it's troublesome. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, so we obviously there's a UW has two other uh, guys coming out um, for because of graduation this year. Uh, Nick Harris, the center, and Jared Hilbers, um, the other tackle. Uh, first, I want to talk about Nick Harris because um, he was kind of you know he was pretty much a two star recruit and um, ended up magically against everyone's predictions, playing as a true freshman at guard and then sliding into center. Um, even though he's undersized and underrated and everything. Um, and by all accounts, I mean, we've seen him be, a, you know, quite a good uh, uh, caller on the, se- on the center um, and also just having kind of that mean streak that 
that, uh, you know, people look for in the offensive line being smart and having really good leverage, um, since he's a little bit shorter than, than, you know, most guys. Um, but obviously, you know, he is undersized. He was undersized in high school to go to college. He's undersized in college to go to the NFL. Um, what do you think kind of ends up happening with him because of, you know, the, he has so many things going well for him and then that big undersized, uh, part of it going against him? Yeah, I really like Nick Harrison. Glad you brought him up. Um, I watched him in preparation for the Senior Bowl, and he really stood out to me among the interior offensive linemen. There's there's other guys that stood out for other reasons, but Nick Harris stood out for production and his quickness and his toughness. He's definitely a smart player, a heady player, like you said, making the calls, the blocking, the adjustment. He gets to the second level so easily, so quickly, and usually is turned 90 degrees before the linebacker turns, and that's just so rare plays in the mean streak loves to finish loves to put guys on the ground if he can the undersized label sticks he weighed he weighed in at 293 this morning so that was not awesome um i was really hoping for like 305 just so all the scouts that have you know three bills as a as a threshold or a plateau for a center wouldn't wouldn't check him off but um saw him in practice today he looks a little shorter in person than he does on tape but um, he struggled a little bit with power today, which I didn't see as much. I mean, he played some very good power teams, like the the guards from Oregon, like Shane Lemieux was supposed to be here as well, and Shane's a big guy. And Nick didn't really struggle against him. Um, yeah, his movement skills are so good, and um, mostly just uh, one of my all-time favorite bears uh, draws a very nice parallel to Nick Harris, right? An undersized, scrappy center who started for the Huskies and, and ended up going on to the Bears and playing there for a long time. Like, Olin Krutz is my yeah. – he's my guy. He's the only bear jersey I own. Um, <laughs> and the symmetry would be a lot of fun. Um, now, do I think Nick Harris is Olin Krutz? I don't, but they, they do look similar in their college profile, minus uh, Olin was a little bit um, sturdier in terms of injury, but, um, you know, not much. They're they're somewhat similar players, you know, 15, 20 years apart, and uh, it would be interesting to see him. And he's going to be a value because of that size. Some people are just going to take him right off the board, and I think that's a mistake because he's an effective player, he's a smart player, he's a good player. Um, but yeah, he's going to have to hold, he's going to have to find a way to hold 305 on his frame, even during the season or just, he's not going to get a lot of looks. He'll be a career backup. So yeah, yeah, I like him, but, uh, he's got some work to do and he's, you know, he was out there doing it today. Um, you know, against top level talent and, and people will see that he's going to be a value, but a lot of times interior offensive linemen are drafted in the third round or later and they end up going on to very good careers. They play eight, nine, 10 years in the league. And I could see Nick Harris doing that. Cool. Um, and then my other question is uh, about uh, the right tackle, uh, Jared Hilbers, who, um, you know, was, again, just like Nick Harris, was super unheralded out of high school, uh, especially since he was in the same class as Trey Adams, um, who was this huge deal. Um, and then he ends up coming in uh, uh, when, Trey, when Trey was injured um, last year, two years ago, whatever, one, I, a couple a year or two ago um yeah. and ended up kind of shocking a lot of people with how well he's played the last two years as a starter both at left and right tackle um and obviously he's not uh the same prospect as Adams is um you know duh very few are um but sure. do you think with his production and the fact that he honestly has kind of been as far as just production and protection 
um, has probably been more consistent than Adams uh, the last two years um, at, uh, you know, on the offensive line. Do you, do you think he has any chance of, um, you know, getting some looks, um, even though he's just based on that, even though he's obviously not, um, not the physical prospect that, that Adams is? Yeah, I do. I think he, because of his versatility, um, having played both sides, having been effective there, um, again, there's just not that many guys that are coming out of college that can do that at a high level. And, and you can argue about the, the Pac-12's stack or rank. It's definitely gone down in, in recent years, but it's um, it's not a bad conference, right? It's, you know, at worst probably fourth or fifth, and that's still some of the top-tier talent in the nation. And for a guy that's come in and played in that conference and had the results and the production and the versatility, you know, look, he, he'll probably get drafted, but I could totally see him being an undrafted free agent that comes into camp, mm-hmm. spends a year on a practice squad, ends up coming up as a swing backup. The the right tackle on the team gets hurt. He steps in and, you know, plays at a replacement level. And the coaches are like, hey, we've got this guy for, you know, UDFAs or $440,000 a year or something, and he's holding down the right side. That's a huge value. Let's sign him to a, you know, probably short-term deal in the first one, two, three years. And, I mean, I could see that very predictably happening for a guy like him because that's, again, not all linemen are drafted high, and that's how it happens. Those guys stick. They're tough. They're versatile. Um, yeah, I think he's got a real shot. It's not going to be a, a flashy trip, and it might be a couple of stops before he latches on, but um, guys like that can do it. Yeah, that's. I like that you say that because that was kind of what I was thinking was either, you know, high round or, or high value UDFA and kind of, you know, ending up like that. So I think that's I, – I, I think that's nice to hear another person – kind of feeling that way too and especially since he's you know he seems like someone who really nobody nobody doesn't deserve success but he you know really yeah. does seem like so he's he's over especially, yeah. yeah exactly i think that's a good way of putting it uh andrew you had a, another question right well yeah, just very quickly i know we've kept you uh but I, i'm just curious to know what you think uh savan ahmed's future uh, in the nfl might look like, like uh, if there is one at all well i mean a, of course there could be one. I mean, look at the look at the 49ers Packers game from from Sunday, right? Raheem Mostert. Like, here's a guy that's a former Bear, he's a former five other teams too, right? Um he's fast and when you get him on a team with a a coach that has a really good running scheme and b two of the best exterior run blockers currently in the league with Kittle and and Jerzyk, like yeah, he gets these eight wide, you know, eight yard wide holes and runs for 220 yards in a <laughs> NFC championship game. Like, is there a future for a guy, um, you know, that's got speed and decent vision? Sure. Running backs, again, you don't have to spend a first round pick on Saquon Barkley to get success at running backs. Saw Philip Lindsay, you know, another guy, guy from Colorado a couple mm-hmm. years, undrafted free agent, leads the league in rushing. Like, I really liked Lindsay, but he wasn't on anybody's radar, and they obviously didn't cost him any draft capital. Guys like that hit all the time, but it takes the right it takes the right coaching staff and it takes the right sort of sequence of events because um, runners are a dime a dozen, big ones, small ones, fast ones. Um, and there's a ton of guys, there's a ton of guys here at the senior bowl that look very similar. You know, they're five, nine, five, ten. Some of them are 
you know, 202, 205. Some of them are up to 218, but not typically, um, you know, and they're all pretty good, right? They have slight differences, but they have pretty good feet, pretty good balance, pretty good catching the ball. They might, you know, might be decent pass blocking or not. But, you know, if a guy that, again, has speed, plays at the major college level, has played against very fast, very light defenses, very physical defenses like Utah, um, and had success, like, sure, that guy can succeed in the pros. It sounds dumb, but running back is probably, it's the most fungible position in the NFL, and it's also the easiest one to come in and have success at, like, immediately. So it could happen right away. It could happen on their seventh team. But, you know, is there a future for a guy like that? Sure. Does he have to find it? Yeah. Is it a bit of a needle in a haystack? Is he going to come in as a, you know, a third rounder? The other guy on the other side of that NFC Championship game was a guy I love out of UTEP, Aaron Jones. But, again, not highly regarded, comes in as the third back in Green Bay and takes him three years to get appreciated and start getting, you know, major carries. And then, you know, here's a guy that's threatening for the league rushing title. So uh, running back is a really goofy position to project, but almost any of these guys can have success if they get slipped into the right niche. Yeah, well, we'll keep our fingers crossed on Ahmed and, and, EJ, thanks so much for joining us tonight. It's been super informative. I, I really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, have fun in Mobile. I hope the rest of the Senior Bowl week treats you well. And hopefully sometime we'll connect again down the road to talk a little bit more about uh, Husky draft prospects. Absolutely. Anytime. Uh, I'm right down the road. Uh, I've been around UW for most of my life. Um, really enjoy the Huskies. Really enjoy um, the program. And they've turned out great athletes, especially recently, but all through their history. So, yeah, anytime. Thanks for having me on. Really enjoyed it. Next time we'll dedicate the whole show to Olin Cruz. <laughs> <laughs> easy easy way to go straight to my heart. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, man. All right. Take care. So thank you to EJ. It was very fun talking to him. I learned a lot about the draft coming up and what the Huskies uh, likely will be doing there. But before we sign off for good for this week, uh, we're going to jump in with a couple plugs and recommendations. Gaby, do you have anything uh, that you would like to offer as a plug or a recommendation, either something involving you or something not at all involving you, which I guess encompasses all possible Uh, things? Yeah, okay. I have a show this Friday at Fremont Troll Farm, which is, or Fremont Troll Farm is the show. It's at Attaball. That's right. It is a show above a, uh, arcade bar. But as a, if you're not going to go to that, which I think nobody listening listening to this will, I have another plug, which is for the concept of a couple other sports where, like, maybe you're done, football season is over, and you're like, I want something to pay attention to that's A, fun, B, not going to get me all stressed out because I don't really care. Uh, may I point you in the direction of the Vancouver Canucks are very fun to watch this season, and hockey is a great sport where it, you don't need to know what's going on, and you can still have fun, and it's stress-free because you're not emotionally invested in it. Or, alternatively, uh, for rugby, the Seawolves, are defending their two-time repeat champs and the championship game last year kicked ass, so that's neither here nor there. And again, another sport where even if you don't know what's going on, it's super fun. Uh, tickets are always super cheap to go see these games. And unlike most football players, they actually know how to tackle, so that's fun. And that is my plug.
the concept of rugby and hockey. <laughs> I know for your nothing at all about rugby, but when they have rugby sevens on TV, I can't turn the channel. I have to watch it until oh, it's not on anymore. Sevens it is, is like the, the most exciting sport. I, it'll never it's, catch on. If it was going to do it, it would have by now, but it's just like watching it in 15-minute yeah. bursts is absolutely what? perfect. It, it, no, I disagree, it, because it's only existed as a sport for like 20 years, or 25, I suppose, because of the Sevens World Tour, and it's an Olympic sport now, and it's also way more, the U.S. is way more competitive in it, because all you need is like 12 athletes that can, you know, whatever, you don't need a whole development program, then you just throw them on the field, and they can go beat South Africa, which, you know, that's never going to happen in 15s. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Uh, I'm going to recommend, I, I hate being, the, just coming out and being like, hey, have you heard of this prestige drama on HBO? But uh, yeah. I'm going to do it again. Uh, the Outsider is, uh, it's a Richard Price adapted a Stephen King novel. Richard Price is a, a writer. He's done all kinds of stuff. He did The Night Of, which was a phenomenal miniseries on HBO a couple of years ago. But this show, it's uh, Jason Bateman uh, has a prominent role, and Ben Mendelsohn, who's also a very good actor. You recognize him. He has, like, a small role in Star Wars and a bunch of other stuff, Bloodline, things like that. Um, it's like a small-town murder mystery. The first episode feels like kind of a general procedural. The second episode gets a little supernatural, starts to have a little, like, first season of True Detective vibes. The third show, it just goes, like, batshit crazy, and it's, like, very supernatural, and I don't know where it's going from there. But, like, it's one of those shows where I, I'm, like, kind of watching it and start out scrolling through Twitter or something, and I'm just like, uh, no, I've got to put this down. This show is completely absorbed by attention. So if you have HBO and you're interested in something that's, I don't know, kind of a combination of sci-fi and true crime, it is a very, very cool show. So uh, if you're not going to watch rugby or the Vancouver Canucks, that's a good backup plan. All right. I believe you. All right. So that's our show for this week. Thank you for listening. Next week, we're into the shank of the offseason, and that might be a great time to get Cody Pickett on the line. We have no idea if he's willing to join us, but I would love to interview him. So tune in next week or two weeks from now, whenever we record again, to find out, will Cody Pickett be on the show? I don't know. Anyway, do good things, don't do bad things, and ciao.